chapter 1, and verse 13. We've been digging deep into these verses, and we, as the Lord leads, will continue to do so. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you will open our understanding and our hearts to receive what you want to say to us. Lord, would you put within us both a desire and the, the motivation and the empowerment of your spirit to follow hard after you, and we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may have remembered some time back I talked to you uh, about being normal. Uh, when I say some time back, I mean several years. It's been within the last couple of years. So if you're, if you, I don't know, some people make notes in their Bibles and things like that. So I don't know if you've, if you've done that, uh, if you take notes, maybe you remember. If you don't remember, good. No worries. Most of us want to be normal, right? We want to be normal. None of us want to be looked at as odd. Um, normal, if you look it up, if you find the definition, it means the usual, the average, or the typical state or condition. Meaning, if you want to be normal, you want to be like most of the other people around you. But then there are others, and it depends on what you've been exposed to, if you've had any kind of leadership training or anything like that, uh, especially when you get into the corporate world and, and maybe uh, management training, those kinds of things. They will talk about striving for excellence. Excellence. We, we don't want to settle for normal. We don't want to settle for average. We want to be excellent, which a very simple definition of excellent would be better than most, right? Better than most. Above average, a little bit above normal. We... Uh, have experience um, if you've you know if you've been around children, um, you sometimes you know I sometimes look at 
me be careful. I have at least one here to hear me. Sometimes you look at some people, some kids. Sometimes you look at some adults. And you just want to shake your head and, yeah, they're not right. That's, uh, something's not right. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not trying to be crass or, uh, or, or rude, um, but, but most of you know that in our family, in our house, we have two children that are not right. Um, in, in the very proper definition of the term. Um, when you start getting an education about those things and you spend time with therapists and doctors and things that try to teach you how to help children like that, um, they will talk about typical children. That's, that's the the language that is often used, and it is the, probably, by and large, the politically correct terminology to use. Uh, typical children are children that are growing, developing, learning, typically, as children typically. I want to say normally, but that doesn't, you know, when you use that word in that context, it doesn't sound as nice, does it? So you say, Typical children versus atypical children. And I've been thinking about that this week and thinking about this passage of Scripture and thinking about what, is that, what does that really mean when we think about what is typical? Um, in, in the context of the illustration that I've been using, uh, a typical child... Uh, would be one who is growing, learning, uh, maturing, developing their, their motor skills and their abilities as is generally expected. Now, there's always a, a spectrum. You know, them, some are quicker to learn than others. But by and large, there's an average that most typical children conform to. And I suppose the best word to, to define what this is, is the word ideal. The ideal. Um, there are a couple of different definitions for the word ideal. If you were to look this up, you would find um, one definition is existing only in the imagination desirable or perfect, but not likely to become a reality. Are you with me? The ideal in a lot of people's minds is something that exists only in their minds. Somebody would explain a scenario or an option to you, and, and uh, you would maybe respond, well, that would be ideal, but you say, that's not likely to happen. Another definition of the word ideal is it is something that satisfies one's conception of what is most suitable. So in, in all of us, there is a, there is a quality. I, I thought about using the word mature, but that is fraught with so many different 
possible meanings. But in all of us as humans, just simply as humans, there is an ideal standard for humans in, in the culture that we live in that if you say, you know, you conform to this standard, you are an ideal person. When whatever, whatever is meant by that, it might mean, you know, they're, uh, it's someone who is responsible, they're, uh, they, they take care of their family, they go to work, and, and they correspond to this ideal. Um, in other words, this is not a conception that, that exists solely in our imagination. It's not something that, is, uh, that is just exists out there in the ether that nobody will ever live up to. But it is what most all of us here are, are conformed to as humans. Now, if we take that same concept and put it over into spiritual terms, biblical language, we would say as Christians... As followers of Jesus, there is an ideal that we all ought to be striving for, that we all ought to be coming more and more into conformity to. It's not an ideal that exists only in our imaginations, that when we talk about certain uh, things, uh, uh, the, the lifestyle, aspects of the lifestyle of a Christian, uh, we would say, well, you know, that would be ideal if you could do that, but that's not you know, that's not realistic for the Christian. That's not realistic in the real world. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the, the, what is normal. What ought to be. I'm not talking about what is average. You know, average is what most things are. When we say there's a difference between average and normal, right? Average all depends on where you are and the company you are with at the time. Um, there are some places where you do not want to fit in. You know, you, you and I could go to the intensive care units of our local hospitals and we would not want to be average in that environment, right? Right? Because that's not, a, that's not a, uh, something that you want to conform to. No, we would want to be in that setting above average. But in that setting above average would be normal. Would be what we're supposed to be. And this passage of Scripture gives us the word and the command for Christian living where Peter tells us that we are to be holy. You shall be holy in all your conduct. Now, some people in their minds, they would say, well, maybe, yeah, that's ideal. In other words, that's something that exists out there, maybe in our imagination, uh, something to strive for, but it certainly is not realistic. No, Peter says he, you should be holy in all your conduct because it is written, you shall be holy for I am Holy, says the Lord your God. Now, there are three parameters in God's Word that give us a, a better understanding or a meaning that fleshes out the definition of this biblical understanding for holiness, which ought to be the norm 
for God's people. I said this a week or so back, that holiness for the Christian is not uh, like you're trying to be the super deluxe model Christian. It's not like you're trying to be the the Christian with all of the extra options and add-ons. No, it is the norm for you and for me as Christ followers. So what does that look like? Well, to understand fully what it looks like, we need to look over to our Old Testaments and the passages of Scripture that Peter is quoting from uh, when he says, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. These are found mostly in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus. And you will find there basically three ideas that flesh out our, what our understanding ought to be when we think about holiness. The first is uh, connected with the word consecration consecration. If you will look with me at Leviticus chapter 20, you will see a number of verses there. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 7 says, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am the Lord your God. In verses 23 through 26, uh, again we read, you shall therefore, let's see that's 22, I'm sorry, 23. You shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. What things? Well, you read the intervening verses. He's talking about the immoral, idolatrous practices of the Canaanites. Verse 23, God's telling the Israelites, You shall not walk in the customs of those nations. He says, I detested them because of all that they did. Verse 24, But I have said to you, You shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So here in these verses, it gives us really uh, at the core uh, of the meaning of what it is to be holy, the root meaning, and it has to do with this idea of separation, separation. That's uh, what the word consecrate, when he gives us the verb, the command to consecrate yourselves, it means to separate yourself. And there are basically, and this is just kind of logically logical thinking, basically two ideas uh, that uh, go along with this separation. There is, first of all, a separation away from, a separation away from. And if you read through those verses of Scripture, you read uh, in detail the commands that God is giving the Israelites through Moses, and He's telling them, you are not to be like these wicked, immoral, idolatrous nations, uh, the citizens of Canaan uh, that were here before you, but you are to be distinct from them, separate from them. You separate yourself away from their practices. 
And now logically it follows, if there is a separation away from, there is also a separation unto. A separation unto. And that is uh, the second part of this idea of consecration, that we are separated away from the immoral practices that distinguish the world around us, and we are devoted or dedicated unto our Heavenly Father, unto God alone. In other words, we don't belong to ourselves. We don't belong to the world or the culture or the society in which we live, but we belong only completely to God. That's consecration. <clears throat> a good way to understand this, if you'll excuse this very, uh, very simple definition or, or illustration, I'm already using my kids for illustrations. By the way, I, I do try to talk with them and interact with them uh, about this and uh, make sure I don't make them uncomfortable. Uh, so anyhow, don't, you know, don't worry about my kids. We, they'll, they'll be okay. And they won't be, I, 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 won't, I won't ever use any illustrations that'll, you know, throw them under the bus too much or embarrass them too badly. But Scott likes to be talked about, so I use Scott in illustrations a lot. Scott uh, has numerous food allergies, and uh, because he has numerous food allergies, uh, there are certain things uh, that we do just for Scott, Scott gets his own mashed potatoes every Sunday uh, when we, or whenever we make mashed potatoes because he can't have the things that are typically in uh, mashed potatoes. Um, Oreo cookies are, are one of the types of cookies that he can have because they don't have any of the, the allergens that uh, bother him. Um, <coughs> we buy him uh, coconut milk ice cream there it's 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 wonderful we in in recent years only in i don't know maybe the last 5 to 10 years something like that when he was when he was very young very small there were not as many of these types of products available but it's a wonderful blessing and now there's an abundance of these types of things you can get coconut milk ice cream sandwiches and all of this stuff and if you will forgive, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, I'm just trying to help you understand. At our house, those items are consecrated items. They're consecrated items. The, the, now, some things we all partake of, um, we know what we can all have that he can have too, but there are some things that are just for him. And those things are items, uh, his, his ice cream, for example, those are items that are separated away from the rest of us and our food. And many of them, if you read the labels, you will read that the, it, it says this is from a plant uh, or processing, a manufacturing, that there are no uh, allergens in this plant. You know, some things you read that don't necessarily have allergens in the product, but it will give you an additional warning and will say, no, there are no allergens here, but this was produced in a facility that handles tree nuts, dairy, 
whatever, so on and so forth. And they're trying to let you know that though that item is, it doesn't have those ingredients, it doesn't come from a consecrated facility. In other words, it's an impure facility. In our house, those kinds of things are, are separated away from us and unto Him. It's just for His use. And friends, the same holds true for you and I as Christians in this world. What it means to be holy, a holy people, is that we are consecrated people. We are separated away from the world. And not understand, I'm not saying isolated. There, that's a, there's a difference there. And I'm not saying we are aloof or we are better than. I'm not saying any of that. Rather, I'm saying we do not participate in the practices of immorality. We do not, uh, uh, we are, are not a part of the culture that we live in. We're separated away from and unto. So we have this idea of consecration as a part of what it means to be holy. Another part of what it means to be holy is this word, obedience. Obedience. Leviticus chapter 19 uh, helps us to flesh this out. Leviticus chapter 19, two verses there. Verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Uh, are, are all of you in conformity to those verses? No, I'm not. I'm not. So, Pastor, what's... What's the point? Let me, let me ask you to put your thumb in that thought, and I'm going to continue on, and then we'll come back and address that in just a moment. Verse, uh, let's see, verse 37 of Leviticus 19, And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Have any of you ever had your parent say to you, because I said so, that's why? Why? Because I said so. Now, if you are involved with raising or taking care of children, can I just recommend to you that there are times when you need to spend time helping your child understand. It's not always good enough just to say, because I said so. <clears throat> I don't want to have, I, I don't want to go too deeply into this, but I just want to say I have friends that are now living their lives completely differently than the way they were taught growing up. And as I watched them grow up, I watched them start you know, just, just general lifestyle issues. I watched them start throwing things aside and beginning to turn into very worldly-minded, worldly-practicing Christians. Many of them continue to claim to be Christians. Some of them, I believe, still are. Some of them, I'm not so sure because when you start, you know that phrase, throwing out the baby with the bathwater? 
Um, but in many of those cases, you know what I have found out when I have, I've talked with some of them and wondered, you know, why, why are you making all of these changes? Why are you doing, you know, why are you living your life so differently now than, than how you used to live it? And very many of them were taught a, a way of life and were told, this is just the way we do it. They were not given any foundation for why they were doing or not doing the things that they did. So they never had that understanding. They never had a biblical value system, a biblical principle for doing or not doing certain things. One of the things that we read repeatedly through these verses is this phrase, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Now, in the case of, you know, you shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. We all wear synthetic blends these days. Um, th- there, were, there were practices of the heathen, idolatrous people that, that were driven out of the land of Canaan that did those kinds of things on purpose. They, they would wear fabrics made of blended material. They would sow their fields with two different kinds of seeds, those kinds of things. And they were done uh, out of a sense of superstition, appealing to, to the gods for special favor, for special assistance. And... In that case, God said, no, that is a mark of that heathen, idolatrous culture. I don't want you being like that heathen, idolatrous culture, so I'm telling you, no, don't do that. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you know of anybody who wears blended fabrics today in order to appeal to some God for, for special favor or special help? No, those kinds of things aren't problems for us today. This was, a, this was a, a specific, a unique command for a specific circumstance. Now, there's a principle behind it that still applies to all of us. The principle is, you shall have no other gods before me. That still applies. So, all of this, all of this to say part of what holiness entails is obedience to God and His statutes. And as we read through these verses and we read the commands of the Lord and we read this phrase where He, he keeps saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. It's as if partly, it's as if your parent is saying to you, and there are times when for your child and for my children also, it needs to be enough that they demonstrate their submission to authority by simply saying, because you said so, I will do it. I don't always need to know the answer why. I don't always need to understand. And friends, there are times when for you and I as Christians, we 
need to demonstrate our submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of God's word and say simply because you said so. I may not understand. I may not know why, but because you said so, I will walk in obedience to your word. There is that authoritative. But there is also a covenantal aspect. When God says, I am the Lord, yes, he's expressing his authority, but he's also expressing his covenant relationship with his people. I've mentioned this a couple times lately, but if you read uh, and pay close attention to those passages where it says, I am the Lord, you should notice in most of your Bibles that it is Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And in those cases, that is, a, uh, that is telling you that the original word there is the word Jehovah or Yahweh. In other words, it is, the, it is the special name that God gave to his people in covenant relationship with them. In other words, I am your God. It is, a, it is because of the covenant relationship. And this every time we read this, it should remind us, it should point us back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when God first makes his covenant with Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm calling you out so that I can bless you, but I'm blessing you not just for your sake alone, but I'm blessing you in order to make you a blessing. You see, friends, God is not a cosmic killjoy. God is not, does not just give us a bunch of rules and, and regulations so that He can keep us hampered and hemmed in and uncomfortable and just to exert His authority and control and power over us. No, that's not what God does in His commands or in His laws or even in the convictions that He gives you and I as individuals. He does it in order to bless us so that we can be a blessing. Got to hurry. You know about the history of flight. You may not know how and why an airplane flies, but you know a little bit about the history of flight. In 1903, the Wright brothers built an airplane that looked something like this, and they were the first uh, people in history to have a, a flight, you know, manned, manned flight. They flew. Um, I don't know if they understood why everything was working the way it was, uh, how, it, how their contraption flew, but they flew. And all throughout history, airplanes, they, they changed shapes, they changed form, different, different types of power behind them. Um, in, in uh, the 1980s, late 1980s, I think, someone uh, set a world record with this airplane. If you can tell in the picture, the people standing by, one of the smallest airplanes at that time ever to fly, and they called it a bumblebee. You can see why. Very short, little stubby wings, and you, I would look at that thing, and I'd be afraid if I could fit into it. I wouldn't, certainly would not want to try to fly in that thing. Has everybody, everybody flown at least once, most of you, not, maybe not everybody, most of you, you've flown somewhere at least once. 
Then we have those kinds of airplanes, and we go to these kinds of airplanes, like military transport planes that are, that are humongous, so big that this, probably this whole building would fit inside this airplane. Just gigantic. And again, those kinds of things, you'd stand beside and see how big and how large they are and think, man, I how does that thing get off the ground? And then you have other airplanes like this, the, the, the B-2 stealth bomber. Um, airplanes in all sizes and shapes and configurations, different uh, types of power. But they all operate on some basic, similar principles. They conform to certain scientific laws. And when they conform to those laws, these big, gigantic hunks of metal and machinery are somehow able to break free from the bonds of gravity, and they fly. And it's amazing to really think about. That, that big hunk of machinery that weighs tons and tons, but yet because they conform to certain laws, they're able to get off the ground and fly. Friends, again, God gives us His statutes, His laws, His commands, and they are not meant to hamper us or bind us or make us uncomfortable or just so God can demonstrate His power and keep His thumb pressed down on us. No, God is not some power-hungry dictator, but God gives us His laws and they are intended to set us free so we can fly. So we can be everything that we are intended to be. I've got to hurry. So far, two ideas behind holiness. The idea of consecration. Second, the idea of obedience. Finally, this morning, the idea of being undefiled. Undefiled. Again, if you look at the book of Leviticus, and this time in chapter 11. I'm not going to take time. Uh, to, to read a whole lot of these verses, but just uh, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 uh, says this, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Now, what that verse is referring to specifically is God gave them uh, lists of certain clean and unclean animals. And he said there were some animals that were okay for them to eat and some animals that they were not supposed to partake of. If you read in greater detail in the book of Leviticus, you will find that there were other ways that the people could be defiled or they could become unclean. They could by uh, uh, touching or partaking of certain animals. There um, bodily fluids involved, contact with anything dead, uh, also contact with anything else that was unclean, could make you unclean, could contaminate. And God said to these people, and He gave them these instructions. Now, you say, Pastor, and I, I sometimes do this. I read through and I, I read about how they were, they were restricted in, even in taking care of their dead loved ones. You know, their, their family members that had passed away. 
and if they were to uh, care for their, their loved one that had passed and, and provide a burial or whatever they did for, for this person, then they were considered to be defiled. They were unclean. Now, in some of those situations, there was nothing morally wrong with them being unclean in that way. What God was doing is He was trying to help them understand that there were were certain conditions for them to meet in coming into God's presence and being in close proximity to Him. They had to be clean, undefiled people. Now, I'm going to enjoy some pork for lunch today. And it does not meet up, it does not comply with those dietary laws. In fact, there's a verse of Scripture in the New Testament, Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, where Jesus talks about this. Mark chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, these people that had taken all of these Old Testament regulations and made them such a central part of their religious uh, identity. And, and Jesus says, no, that's not why you had all those laws. That's not why. He says, there's nothing that uh, outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Pay attention. I've had, I've had people, I've had Christian people. I'm not talking about Jewish people, but I've had Christian people try to tell me that we're still, for some reason, bound to the dietary laws and restrictions of the Old Testament. Not so. If they want to live that way for their own purposes, health, reasons of health, whatever, that's up to them. More power to them. But here Jesus declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You see, God set His chosen people, Israel, apart from all other nations. And He said, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And I've set you apart. And and He's distinguished them uh, and given them these practices to teach them that in coming to God and being in right relationship with God, they must be clean. This is a picture of the Tennessee River in Chattanooga, Tennessee, just downriver from Chattanooga, Tennessee, is the little town where I used to live when I was a boy, a little town called South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. And we got our water supply from 
the Tennessee River. The river's right there, very convenient place to get your water from. So that's where our water supply came from. But do you know what Chattanooga did with the Tennessee River? They dumped their waste into the Tennessee River. And then that water would flow downstream to the little town where I lived, and we would drink it and cook with it. And there were times when, no joke, you'd turn the water on and it would not be clear when it came out of the faucet. Say, well, just let it run for a little bit and maybe it'll clear up. How can you expect the water that flows to be clean when it comes from a source that is unclean? I don't care how much chemicals and how much processing that that water goes through. That's still kind of yucky. And I'm sorry that I had to drink it when I was a kid. Amen? Can I just tell you kindly that the same is true with our hearts? The Bible tells us that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. And no matter how many new leaves we turn over, no matter how much we determine within ourselves to be good, there is at the core of our being a defiled, unclean source. This is something that does not take, that does not get taken care of when we are saved. Thank God for what happens in salvation. When we come to God and confess our sins, we receive forgiveness for our deeds, our actions of sin. But there remains within us a nature that is defiled, a nature that God's Word teaches us that we are born with. And it does not get cleaned at the same time that our hands get cleaned. We are in need, friends, even after salvation, we are in need of a deeper cleansing. And in Acts chapter 15, Peter stands before the Jerusalem council and he tells them about going to uh, the household of Cornelius and there he preaches to them. And he says uh, in his summary of what happened on the day of Pentecost, verses 7 through 9, he says that God that knows the hearts made no difference between them and us and purified their hearts by faith. When Peter explained what happened on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out, he, it didn't have anything to do so much with the speaking in tongues or the wind that blew or the fire that came and rested on their heads. But when he summed it all up, he said what matters, what really took place at Pentecost was that our hearts were purified by faith. In other words, that root was cleansed. David in Psalm 51 prayed this way, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you know why 
We may need to be whiter than snow. I don't know if this is what God had in mind when he gave us this verse in the Bible, but most of you know that every little flake of snow that forms when it falls and it blankets the ground and makes everything so white and beautiful and looks so clean and so pure, yet every single one of those flakes is formed around a little piece of dirt or dust. I have no idea if that's what God uh, uh, had in mind when he inspired David to, to pray and to write that way, but it certainly works for me. Wash me and I shall be clean. I shall be whiter than snow. In other words, to have that thing that is at the very root cleansed and purified. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, the prophet says, We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, Ezekiel chapter 36, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, note that in all of these verses, the passage is quoted, the cleansing comes from God, from a, a divine source. It's not any kind of a ritualistic external cleansing that cleans us up, but it's something that takes place within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. One more verse, and then I'm going to give you the closing illustration. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Friends, what flows out will never be fully clean like it ought to be unless the source is cleansed and purified. In the year 1818, Ignis Semmelweis was born into a world of dying women. The finest hospitals lost one out of six young mothers to what was known as childbed fever. In those days, a doctor's daily routine began in the dissecting room where he performed autopsies. From there, he made his way to the hospital to examine expectant mothers without ever pausing to wash his hands. Dr. Simmelweis was the first man in history to associate such examinations with the infections and the illness that came about as a result. His own practice was to wash with a chlorine solution, and after 11 years in the delivery of 8,537 babies, he had lost 184 mothers, which at that time was one in 50. Now, for our day, that sounds terrible, but compare one in 50 to one out of six. That was the average mortality rate. Dr. Simmelweis was doing pretty good in his day. 
He spent the vigor of his life lecturing and debating with his colleagues. Once he argued perpetual fever is caused by the decomposed material and conveyed then to the wound. He said, I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proved all that I have said. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. I'm not asking anything world-shaking. I'm asking you only to wash. For God's sake, he said, wash your hands. But virtually no one believed him. Doctors and midwives had been delivering babies for thousands of years without washing, and no outspoken Hungarian was going to change their minds now. Dr. Simmelweis died insane at the age of 47, his wash basins discarded, his colleagues laughing in his face, and the death rattle of a thousand women ringing in his ears. And he said, for God's sake, wash your hands. King David, the cry of his heart was, wash me and I shall be clean. Purge me with hyssop, cleanse me and I shall be whiter than snow. And friends, both whether or not you're saved, unsaved or, or saved and you have not yet pursued this cleansing in your heart, then I want to say to you this morning, for God's sake, come to him for the deep cleansing that you need. It's not something that you can do in and of yourself, but if you come in total consecration and saying, God, I want your will in my life. I want to be obedient. I want to be wholly, totally dedicated to you and die to yourself. The Holy Spirit of God can cleanse your heart so that what flows out of you comes from a heart that is clean, supernaturally clean. Praise His name.